Welcome to Deep Green, a bi-weekly show about how the built environment impacts climate change and equity. Deep Green is brought to you by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. Buildings are some of the biggest things we make as human beings. So if you want to know how we can do better for the environment and for all life on this planet, you have to understand buildings and cities and all the things that go into them. And that's what we want to help you with here at Deep Green. The COVID-19 pandemic has produced so many shifts and undercurrents in our world. And many are so subtle that historians will probably spend decades tracking and understanding them all. But some changes are not so subtle if you know where to look for the data. So here's a stat for you. Between April and June this year, construction of multifamily housing that's apartment buildings and condos, grew by 25.5% in suburban areas. By contrast, construction of the same type of buildings declined by half a percentage point in major cities. There's no two ways about it. There's going to be a lot more Americans living in suburbs. Now, I didn't grow up in America, so it always amuses me how heated some people can get about the suburbs. You know, for some folks, suburban life is like the epitome of the American dream. And for others, suburbs are where dreams go to die. Almost none of them, though, thinks that the suburbs are particularly eco-friendly. In the 1960s, columnist Bill Vaughan wrote that suburbia is where the developer bulldozes out all the trees and then names the streets after them. Ouch. Snark aside, it's time to take the suburbs seriously. In 2018, about a quarter of all Americans lived in the suburbs. And if more folks are going to join them, then we should all be paying more attention to how these communities are being built and what effect that would have on the climate crisis. So that's our episode today. Can we make the suburbs sustainable? Segment one, retrofitting suburbia. If you've been following Deep Green and have listened to our episodes on the Olympics and affordable housing, if you haven't, you can go find them quite easily everywhere that you get podcasts, you know that we are big fans of avoiding making new buildings where possible and doing the most we can with the buildings and spaces we already have. And the reason we say that is because every new building means more carbon emissions in the atmosphere. So, if the suburbs continue to see as much new construction as they have this past year, we have to act fast. What can we do to A, use the buildings we already have in the suburbs, and B, modify existing infrastructure and facilities to mitigate some of the negative effects of new construction? Luckily, there's plenty of good news out of the suburbs on that front. And the bearer of that good news is our guest for today. Professor Ellen Dunham-Jones, who is co-author of the book Retrofitting Suburbia, a compendium of case studies for how suburbs are building for better quality of life and better impact on the planet. Here's Metropolis editor Ethan Tucker with Professor Dunham-Jones. I wonder if we could just start actually by you just telling us a little bit about what it is that you study in terms of suburbs and urban design and sort of what some of your research areas are? So I started almost 25, 30 years ago becoming, I'm trained as an architect, but I grew up in New Jersey, the most suburban state. 
And I began to get really kind of interested in why is it we just keep reproducing sprawl? And it doesn't matter how beautiful the building is if everything around it is just so automobile oriented. So I was always sort of interested in that and then began to find examples that were actually doing this <laughs> and, and mostly taking building on top of the parking lots and redeveloping dead malls, dying office parks, aging garden apartment complexes, a lot of the suburb, the, the really typical auto oriented parking lot dominated suburban sites, but they, their story, they weren't generally being published in the magazines because they didn't look really cool or pretty, or they weren't seen as advancing architecture. And I thought, my gosh, these stories deserve to be told. More communities could benefit from these replicable lessons. With June's help, June Williamson and I just began collecting examples. We had about 80 when we wrote the first book. I've maintained the database since then, and they just kept getting more ambitious and better designed. Mm -hmm. And we felt there were just so many more stories to tell as they were tackling more and more challenges that the suburbs were never designed for. I think there's this interesting tension between the study of urbanism and architecture, which tends to be a more urban discipline and where most building actually happens in this country, right, which is the suburbs. So could you just tell us a little bit about why you as an urbanist and why other urbanists ought to be interested in paying attention to the suburbs? I'll tell my personal story. I mean, I Absolutely. I love downtowns. But my own education, I felt like you walk into the architecture library of any university and there will be shelf after shelf of books on downtowns, what we should be doing in downtowns. We aren't always doing it, but we at least know <laughs> and have pretty much consensus on what we should be doing in downtowns. There's remarkably little written about suburbia some books that condemn it, some early books that show you how to make subdivisions. And I was actually told at two previous universities that I worked at, you know, if, if you were a real urbanist, you'd be working on downtowns like us, basically my older male colleagues. The suburbs were sort of seen as feminine and other and, and just not worth, just, I was taught to hold, all architects, I think, are taught to hold the suburbs and suburbia in disdain. We didn't have anything to do with it, and yet it is where half the population lives. It's where most of our new buildings, it's where the most consumption, you know, the highest carbon footprint per capita, the most social segregation, you know, every and as the suburbs are aging, every challenge you could possibly want to work on is evident in the suburbs. And I just felt like there was th this need to convince my fellow architects and urbanists that change is actually happening in the suburbs. It's possible. It's happening. And boy, it would be great if it happened more. So June and I really try to focus on sort of case studies and replicable examples that other communities can learn from. So along with June, you've sort of created this database, right, of what you describe as the only database in the world of suburban retrofits. What are those, what are those retrofits and what have you learned from keeping the database for however long you've had it? It was only a list when we wrote the first book. <laughs> we had about 80 case studies that we knew about. 
it's, I then have maintained it since the first book and have, we have over 2000 in there now. And that really is just the tip of the iceberg because we were working so long on the new book that I wasn't really updating the, the, the database, but what we ca- I categorize them by the before property type. So whether it's dead malls, dead strip malls, big box, dying office parks, garden apartments, golf course communities, defunct gas stations, branch banks, parking lots. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of these automobile dominated property types. And it's a subjective call at a certain point, but I only track those where I feel they've done something to make them more sustainable, socially, economically, environmentally. And so the strategies that June and I kind of categorize them by is they're either being redeveloped into a more urban form, they're being re-inhabited with more community-serving uses, or they're being re-greened to repair the ecology and adapt to climate change. To By doing this, I, I really do get to see and identify trends. I get to help advise communities kind of based on their particular position in the market, sort of what other communities like them kind of have done. So, And I get to track things. So I can tell you that of the 1,500 properties that at one time were an enclosed mall in the U.S., 442 of them have at least had a proposal made to be retrofitted. Of those, 195 have been substantially completed. Slightly more than half of those have been redeveloped, mostly into more urban form, but not always. And then, you know, a little less than half have been significantly re-inhabited with more community serving uses. Only three have been fully re-greened, and which I think is really where there's so much more opportunity and need. 70 of those proposals have failed. And of course, there's a lot to learn from that, especially because since the pandemic started, there's just been a flurry of new proposals to redevelop dead malls. And they're not all going to happen, but understanding and trying to, it always helps, I think, for people to have some precedence to be able to look at as they're trying to figure out, what do we do with this thing now? I'm wondering if we can talk for a minute about sort of the sustainability aspect here, because obviously there's a sustainability story in just reusing a a building, period, right? To avoid tearing down a building and putting up a new one is a sustainable action that saves a certain amount of carbon from going into the atmosphere. But are there other ways that these reuse projects could be used to sort of promote a sustainable development agenda here? Absolutely. And I think it's really, again, it's such an important opportunity that they provide because the suburbs, nobody was talking about sustainability in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, we did start talking a little about it, but it wasn't how we were. We weren't talking about it in terms of how we built, designed the world. And so the opportunities to add water and energy resilience are major. Sadly, I would say we don't see as many energy retrofits as I wish we did. It's basically just a whole lot easier if you're trying to make an entire a solar suburb to start from scratch than it is to to retrofit one. 
But we do see quite a lot of renewable energy going in. We see a fair amount of microgrids now with all the homes being connected. We see combined cooling, heating, and power plants and stuff. District energy systems as become much more feasible as soon as you're building more compactly. But on the water side, we just see a lot, a lot of really great improvements. The suburbs were basically built around getting the water into pipes and picking up all the toxic runoff along the way and then polluting our streams. That's kind of, that was, that's, that was considered normal. <laughs> that's what we do. Let's drain the wetlands. Let's culvert the creeks. And we see now great opportunities to really certainly infiltrate and absorb a lot more water on site before it gets into the creeks. A lot more green infrastructure in general. We see there's a mall in Connecticut, Meriden Mall, that's been replaced by a stormwater park. It was built on top of creeks that flooded the no da- whole whole downtown all the time. It's now it's now a stormwater park. It's during the days, most of the time, it's a green park. And what had been the culverted creek has been daylit. But when it rains, it's designed like a little bit like a bathtub. And it holds all of the stormwater for that downtown. So that now 227 properties that used to be in the floodplain are now out of the floodplain, and that's allowed them to rebuild some of their public housing, rebuild their train station, attract new private market rate housing, I think, in terms of sustainability. And I think in terms of climate change specifically, there's opportunities really to address both mitigation and adaptation. And the suburbs really need to be doing this. Maybe we can talk next about revitalization and development as potentially a dirty word, right? In terms of, you know, you just mentioned triggering the development of market rate housing in Meriden. Are there risks here in terms of redeveloping these spaces as places that attract a a different sort of clientele or a different sort of employee or resident base that could displace people or cause an unsustainable development cycle to begin? Certainly. Gentrification is always a risk. Where I worry about it most is when aging suburban garden apartment complexes are redeveloped at a, almost always at a higher density and a higher price point. And in some respects, they're getting some of that higher density and maybe that's a good thing, but boy, they're displacing folks big time. Many of these complexes, I mean, the history of of garden apartments is fascinating. And there are a couple of people that have have kind of dug into it. But many of these complexes are now 60 to 70 years old. They're often moldy. They're not healthy places to live, but they're the housing of last resort for low-income renters. And right now, in the middle of a housing crisis, they need to be preserved. Where I live in Atlanta, Fulton County, between 2008-2016, lost 250 apartment complexes, a total of 9,000 units. Now, we didn't replace, we didn't build 9,000 units of affordable housing in that time. They mostly were lost actually to just simply decay. The roof fell in. Less than a dozen actually were engaged in any kind of gentrification. 
So, you know, but those, those dozen certainly are the cases of direct displacement, but most of the retrofits are really on commercial sites. It's quite rare to be, other than the garden apartment complexes, and there are plenty of those, but they're, it's very rare that it's residential, that it's really being redeveloped. So it's not that much direct displacement. And the cities that we most associate with gentrification, those kind of top six that the Fed has pointed out, those are locations where you're so close to where prices are escalating so high. Because prices are so high in those in really close-in locations, that's where actually the suburban redevelopments tend to provide housing that's cheaper than what is being constructed closer in town. So what we often sort of see is are a mix of things that actually the suburban redevelopment almost never happens until the market for urban living has been proven in town. And so then the suburban becomes the sort of cheaper version. One can argue that it's actually helping to dampen prices a little bit. But what we also do see is that the communities where there's not a lot of redevelopment, there's not a lot of gentrification, there's just not a lot, you know, we have a lot more communities that are struggling with a lack of investment, loss of jobs than with gentrification. Those communities are very unlikely to attract high-end suburban redevelopment if there's not anything else happening kind of closer in town. Those communities are much more likely to benefit from the kind of re-inhabiting of the dead retail spaces, which often happens much more cheaply, and the new jobs, the education, the medical uses, those kinds of things. So there are a lot of really wonderful ethnic malls now that were built as suburban malls for white families, and now are community hubs with really serve the new immigrant faces and provide not just retail, but you know, might be Spanish-speaking pharmacies, lawyers, a whole wide range of services. So it's, yes, gentrification and displacement are absolutely a risk, but the only place where I really see it directly happening is in some of those garden apartment complexes. And what about places where it's sort of not not worth the cost of, of redeveloping or there's no interest in re-inhabiting. You talk about this idea of re-greening. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about that? I love the re-greening projects. I just really wish we saw so many more of them. But what we see we've seen lots of examples, not as many as there should be, but there's whether it because a wetland was drained, one example out in Minnesota, Phelan is a very low income suburb of Minneapolis and the strip mall had been built on top of a drained wetland. The culverts started failing. So the parking lot was starting to perk and the strip mall failed. It happened to be on a major migratory bird route. And the landscape architecture department at University of Minnesota helped the community get a grant to reconstruct the wetland. And they did. They reconstructed beautiful wetland. Well, that created lakefront property, which attracted the first new private development in over 40 years to a very low-income community that really needed that. And we see that a lot. A well-designed park tends to increase adjacent property values about 30%. So the opportunities of regreening to both trigger investment where it really is needed and to 
help address more severe storms, wildfires, the issues of climate change, is, I think, a, a real opportunity that we just don't have nearly enough funding and financing mechanisms right now to support. Some of the other regreenings have been paid for. Over 700 U.S. municipalities have a combined sewer system of sanitary and stormwater in the same sewers. And EPA has consent decrees with most of them. And so that's forcing them to really deal with their sewer problems. And so the regreening is often, that becomes another, it's not a source of funding. EPA is not paying them, but EPA is mandating that the cities deal with these problems. And frankly, regreening and using green infrastructure as a way to basically keep the stormwater out of the sewer pipes so that the sewer systems don't have the overflows that becomes actually a, a really smart way to do this. And, and we're seeing quite a bit of that. What I train my students really yeah. to do a lot is just look at parking lots as future building sites. Whether that means if you're in a community that you're not going to be able to get the structured parking right away or something, you know, but still design new parking. If you have to build a new parking lot, design it as a future building site. Do not put utility lines diagonally underneath, across underneath it, lay it out so it's ready. <laughs> and that's like the easy, one of the easiest things to do. I wonder in redesigning the suburbs, like what sort of challenges left behind by past generations of architects and planners, like utility lines underneath parking lots, people find in the course of these projects? Oh, there's a lot of yeah. them. <laughs> I think. Uh, there's always surprises, although a, a lot of the developers who like working on retrofits like the fact that these sites have already been cleared. There's already water and sewer and power to the sites. They're generally in connected locations to some degree. They also actually have quite a lot of advantages. Maybe we can wrap up by talking about like a couple strategies that communities where there are these underused suburban sites have taken, could take examples they could look to, to bring some of these projects about. The first thing that I tell both my students, but also communities that, that I'm working with or through my books, start by figuring out what really are your most pressing challenges. They really differ from place to place. In our new book, June and I identify what we call sort of six urgent challenges for specifically for suburbia, and then document how 32 diverse case studies in different markets, climates, and geographies successfully used retrofitting to address several of them simultaneously. I don't think there's any one project that addresses all six, but <laughs> you can always address a few. So does your community need to figure out how to better disrupt automobile dependence, improve public health, support an aging population, leverage social capital for equity, compete for jobs, or add water and energy resilience. And if you can begin to make a hierarchy somewhere, you know, all of them are important, but really what for you are the most important. Once you know your priorities, start looking for where the opportunities are to build on the parking lots, repurpose vacant or underused buildings as social infrastructure, and where you might be able to daylight the creeks. Deep Green will be back 
after a short commercial break. Deep Green is brought to you by Carnegie, a Metropolis Sustainability Next partner. Beautiful, functional, sustainable, bio-based Zorel. In 2013, Carnegie introduced Bio-Based Zorel, a plant-based product with a measurably net positive impact. Bio-Based Zorel products are made up of 75% bio-based content sourced from rapidly renewable sugarcane plants. It is the first and only bio-based textile to earn Living Product Challenge and Cradle to Cradle Gold certifications. Visit CarnegieFabrics.com to learn more. Welcome back. Today, we're asking the question, can we make the suburbs sustainable? And here's segment two, a suburban staple. The mall is not only a symbol of post-war America, but also a great American export, as anyone who's grown up in Asia over the last few decades can attest. Yet, in its country of birth, here, the mall has been dying a slow death, and the pandemic has dealt another blow. More than 12,000 stores at malls announced closures in 2020 alone, according to the CoStar Group, which provides data on real estate. Another research group, CoreSight Research, estimates that 25% of U.S. malls, that is a quarter of all malls, will close in the next five years. You know what that makes me think about? The fact that every time we tear one of these malls down, we're going to be putting emissions in the atmosphere and creating holes in communities. So what's the alternative? Yes, you heard Professor Dunham Jones speak a few minutes ago about ethnic communities coming together at malls. And believe me, in most places in America, take it from me, the best place to get Indian food is at a strip mall. But in this segment, we're going to take a different tack. Ethan Tucker speaks to Jose Sanchez and Grace Corsi at the architecture firm DLR Group, which has imagined a second life for a Los Angeles mall. Now, I know. Their case study is located in a big city and we're talking about suburbs today, but its lessons are just as applicable to the suburbs. You know, how can we put racial equity and climate change at the heart of what is sometimes thought of as purely a question of real estate development? You know, something just subject to the vagaries of the market. Here's Ethan again. Jose, I wanted to ask you about the competition that you undertook at DLR and why you and your team were so interested in exploring the possibilities that are available with these underused shopping mall spaces. The possibility of a shopping center was an intriguing one because of the evolution of retail in the last um, decade, couple decades. I'm seeing a lot of the large retailers go dark, mostly because of outdated financial models that didn't keep up with the times and especially the behemoth that um, Amazon is. Taking a lot of those big boxes out of, of business, for example, allowed for a lot of real estate out there to be able to be adapted, reused, or redeveloped. The biggest challenge with shopping centers is that they were designed in a way that they were more commodities than they were anything else. The idea that you go in and out and, and shop, there's large parking lots, it sits out on an island. There's no community connection to these shopping centers. And so there was a lot of possibilities there to 
be able to make that community connection, to be able to redevelop it into a, a greater project than it is today. I think we think of malls as a place that we get to hang out, but that was kind of romanticized in these movies in the 80s and stuff. But the reality, they're not really great spaces. You get one central court, a food court with a bunch of hot dogs and a stick and, and sabaros. It's not the most enticing place to really hang out and stay, but it was the only place to be able to do, especially in a lot of these suburban communities that lack true town centers. Uh, so for us, there was an opportunity to not only develop this land to be more sustainable, more equitable, and more resilient, but also to be able to look at a specific site that was fresh in the news and that was in a in a neighborhood that really lacked that kind of attention of redevelopment. The community was thirsty for that kind of redevelopment, and they were very vocal as to what they wanted to see. So we thought that we could apply this community engagement model that we had developed into this process and do a hypothetical project case study for this project, which we are using in practice on a number of projects today. But it was nice to do this kind of design competition and think outside the big box, as we call it, on the piece. Now, Grace, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about sort of this this particular site, Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza, and how your team came to it, why, why you selected it, and what some of the unique characteristics there are. We found this site to be a really great one because not only was it right in our backyard since we have a Los Angeles office, it also was popping up in the news multiple times right before we did this competition because of a very vocal and active community group that had been protesting and basically put on hold a development process that was happening for them all because their needs and concerns weren't being heard or met by the developer. So we saw this as an opportunity to go in and reimagine what would happen if we did listen to some of those concerns and if that was actually what drove the process. It also made a lot of sense because, I mean, <laughs> Los Angeles isn't exactly the pinnacle of sustainability. And there are a lot of issues that we could start to educate people about and think about through this process, like the urban heated island effect that is so prevalent with any parking lot see that accompanies them all or proximity to lack of parks or for example this site when Los Angeles County did a park needs assessment was bordering on an area that was very high park need all of those reasons kind of came together and made this site make a lot of sense to pick and once we dove into more research about the site we found that it lay at the intersection of a lot of really interesting conditions so it had census tracts bordering it that were ranging from $14,000 in median household income per year to $170,000. It had a neighborhood of basically middle and upper class Black and African American homeowners that were able to purchase homes during white flight and that are highly educated, right adjacent to an area that's lower income, that's almost 100% renters. And it was also one of the at the centers of Black culture west of the Mississippi. And despite having these differences in perhaps income or education or homeownership status, really was a united community culturally that had a really strong identity and that used them all to express a lot of that culture through things like the Pan-African Film Festival and the protests that have happened in that mall as a community gathering space. And on top of that, there were two large anchor retail locations in that, the Sears and the Walmart, in that mall that both went dark. So there was a lot of physical underutilized land that presented the possibility of 
being repurposed into something else. In the past, it really depended on those large anchor tenants and department stores to be the main drivers into the mall. That's a different model today. You see a lot of grocery stores like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's be those anchors, entertainment centers like cinemas and, and family entertainment centers as well that, that become those anchors, which is great. Uh, we're seeing a lot of just open spaces and gathering spaces be that that anchor. But the old model relied on that department store. And we have an enclosed mall like that and those pieces go dark. Well, what's next? You know, the pandemic really showed us the struggles of relying on one single aspect. Office buildings closed, for example. So if an office building closed and they had no retail or educational uh, facilities, well, nobody else was coming to that space. And same thing with malls or the single use, especially in the enclosed mall. The doors closed. That was it. The shopping centers that survived or the ones that people were active in or the open air shopping centers because they became the true town centers for those those communities. People were able to gather safely, walk the shopping center, whether or not the stores were open or not, they were still able to use the space as a public space, even though it's, it's private space. And so one of the big pieces, and we've seen a lot of this, is the demalling of the mall, which is mostly removing of the roof and, and creating exterior spaces, which in a pandemic where uh, indoors has a lot more regulations than being outdoors, that's become key. I'm curious also about this earlier proposed plan that got a lot of negative feedback from the community. Because I think when people hear about redevelopment, especially in black and brown communities, there's a lot of fear there, rightfully so, I think. And I'm curious about how you sort of approach that process of reaching out to the community to find out what people who relied on the space wanted the space to look like and how sort of that process of community-informed design took place here, even though this was more of a theoretical or experimental project, sort of what that, what that engagement process was like. So just through our research on the history of the site, it was very plain to see that the concerns that the community was voicing today are the same concerns that they have been voicing for decades about disinvestment, disenfranchisement, wanting more of a voice in the process, wanting support for Black-owned businesses and community ownership, calling for more housing. If you go back and read historical news articles, there are direct quotes from people in the community that talk about these very same things. There was a master plan that was approved by the community at one point. And the biggest challenge with what CM Group plan was that it ignored almost all of that. It really was developing more or less an office park. The people in the community wanted to see was you know, some of their local tenants that they were used to seeing, and they were devoid of that plan. So housing, for example, which is such a huge need in Los Angeles period, but even especially so in South LA, affordable housing was not part of that plan as well. So there's been this hope for this plot of land for so long. And so this community group was not going to let that that chance pass by without having their voice heard. And anybody who's who stepped up to purchase the property has been met by that resistance. Now they themselves have been trying to purchase the property as well as a community group, which I think is an encouraging piece as much as difficult as that may be in finding investors and everything else that may take part of that. But I think that's one of the other aspects too, is that if a community group can take ownership of a property like that and then truly have their voice placed into a, a process. So maybe we could talk about how you see this model sort of taking root or, or being attractive to investors. Is there a possibility of something like this happening in the real world? Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest thing for us is we have to ask our clients, like, what do they want to do out of developments, right? Do they really want to design something for a commodity or to be a community? 
And so really coming down to what the developers want to do, are they willing to diverge from their traditional models of development? And that's going to be the, the biggest challenge. I think there's some developers out there that already focus on community design, and that's great. And we're working with two really great ones, McFarland Partners at Freedom West and Prime Store uh, Development at Panorama Mall. And I think for, for them, they understand it. There are others that are very bottom line focused, and, and that's understandable. That's that business model. And then there's the group I think that we're speaking to. It's the one in the, in the middle. The one that need a little bit more of an assistance to push them ahead and have, have them have an understanding of how to speak to the community and how to get the, the most out of those conversations in the development so that they get very little resistance or less resistance when it comes to approvals. We've all been in those community meetings and there's always going to be the people that are going to fight any kind of development, of course. But then there's a way to kind of engage them in the conversation and make them feel a part of that too. So once we get the, the developers on board, then there's going to be an understanding that if a community needs places to connect, places to gather, social hubs that become their, their living rooms or those, those communities, if that becomes a key element to design for them, and the understanding that that also drives footfalls, which drives sales, connecting all those pieces together. I think that's the, the main objective here. Maybe we can just close out with some thoughts about seeing malls, especially shopping malls that don't get used very much or are sort of almost ghost towns or empty, how we can start seeing them as an opportunity or a potential community asset. There's an opportunity here in, in these acres of land to redevelop, to create dense mixed-use developments with housing, retail, workplace opportunities, co-working opportunities, as well as the neighborhood-based healthcare aspects too. And if we can add the ed- educational piece to that, it makes it even stronger to really create an ecosystem around a livability component of that, that there's synergies and a true community that can feed off each other at the same time. Deep Green is produced by Metropolis. I'm your host, Avi Rajagopal. The podcast is edited by Hannah Vidi with support from Lauren Volker. Today's stories were reported by Ethan Tucker. If you liked today's episode, check the links in the show notes wherever you're listening to this podcast for articles on metropolismag.com that drive deeper into the topics we've discussed today. That's our website, metropolismag.com. A big thank you to today's guests and to all the folks at Sandow Design Group who support Deep Green. Be sure to follow us or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Deep Green.